0: The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit Christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the objects at the heart of Charles III's coronation, plus Carl Lagerfeld at The Met, and the British artist Marlene Smith. As Charles III is crowned at Westminster Abbey this weekend, Anna Summers-Cox tells us about the objects involved in the coronation and the rich history they convey. The Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York this week opens Karl Lagerfeld, a line of beauty, the latest in the hugely successful Costume Institute exhibitions. The German designer, who died in 2019, was also the inspiration for this year's Met Gala, the museum's star-studded fundraiser. I talked to Stephanie Spawn, a fashion historian and arts and culture writer, about the exhibition, the gala, and the controversy around Lagerfeld's deeply offensive comments about a range of issues. And this episode's work of the week is Good Housekeeping Three by the British artist Marlene Smith. She's part of a new exhibition in Wolverhampton, UK, focusing on the Black Art Group, a collective of young black British artists active in the late 1970s and 1980s, for which she's recreated the work first made in 1985. Smith tells me more about it. Don't forget you can subscribe to The Art Newspaper by visiting our website and clicking the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. You can choose from digital, complete or student subscriptions. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, Charles III's accession to the UK throne occurred immediately after Queen Elizabeth II's death last September, but as is customary, a period of months has elapsed before his official coronation, which happens this weekend at Westminster Abbey in London. At the heart of this grand and deeply religious ceremony are objects that stretch across centuries of British royal history. To find out more about them and their significance in the ceremony, I spoke to Anna Summers-Cox, the founder of the art newspaper and a former assistant keeper of metalwork at the Victorian Albert Museum in London. Anna I have to confess, I am a bit of a Republican, and yet I am very interested in history, so I guess i 'm asking you to tell me why should I care about the coronation? Why is it important for me to take note of it
1: <laughs> uh, yeah well we 're beginning to be a minority. we people who like the crime well, I like it because I think it 's very romantic, and it 's always been there. And there is something definitely archetypal about it. I mean, you don't Jung go back to Golden Bar phrase and all the rest of it. You know, the king is dead. Long live the king. There's that. Sense of life springing anew, even though one thinks of poor old, rather elderly Charles springing anew after the very elderly Queen. I'm fully aware of the absurdities and I wonder what the Archbishop of Canterbury is going to be feeling as he is conducting this medieval service, calling down God upon a king to whom we will swear all kinds of serious oaths of fealty, etc., which we will immediately forget again afterwards. (laughs) However, (laughs) however... It moves me, partly because it is so old, because it is so continuous, and also because when I try to think of the alternative, which is an elected president, and adding yet more power to somebody in politics, as opposed to these people who, eccentric as they may be, are actually genuinely outside politics, and yet have a very good representational role, I just shudder. I'm very happy for them to go on. And you Think, think about this. Charles... Um, has just come back from Germany, where he went to Hamburg, which we bombed to smithereens at the end of the war. And he stood there and he laid a wreath at the memorial to the many civilians who died and said, basically, we're very sorry. Now, no politician can do that because they always tainted with party politics and so on. And the monarchy is outside all that. So that's one thing. And the other thing is it is continuous. I mean, we had essentially a socialist revolution after the Second World War, and hooray for it. It brought us the National Health Service and lots of very fine things. But it wasn't perceived as being a revolution because... The monarchy carried on and people walking backwards holding white wands and gold lace and um, coronations and stuff. So there was a feeling that history carried on as before. And I think that allows us to be a more radical country than, say, Italy, which is a presidential country and which is endlessly fighting over rather small things and not tackling big issues. And we do tackle big issues in Britain. So there you are. Those are my reasons.
0: No, that was a a very powerful argument. I'd like to explore a little bit first, before we go into the individual objects and their history, this idea of it being the last surviving coronation rite, because this was something I hadn't really clocked until recently, that, yes, there are other monarchies, but they don't actually have a coronation rite as such, do they?
1: Yes. It's not that they're all very recent, but they've had sort of interrupted histories, And apart from the great civil war in the 17th century, where we tried being a republic and didn't like it, basically, so we very quickly reinvented all the traditions from before, we have passed things down, we have a seamless history. We're the only country in Europe, I think, that has a completely seamless history. I think that must be the reason.
0: Yeah. And then, of course, there's this idea that it is a religious service that we're about to see, that the king at one point is dressed effectively as a priest king. So it's absolutely a sacred rite that we're about to witness.
1: Yes. And that is where, of course, it loses contact with most of the population, because only 6% of the British population actually practice any form of religion. So that dimension is missing from their consciousness, or but it is it because you know you get all kinds of sort of improvised religions popping up, so I like this because it is the very old one. Uh, we no longer believe that he rules by the grace of God, so quite a lot of that language in the service is rather extraordinary, but it connects us with very deep time and very big concepts. And so long as it isn't actually doing any harm, and of course there are people who think that the monarchy as a phenomenon does harm, but I don't think so. As long as it isn't doing any harm, I can't see any reason to get rid of
0: it. Just to be clear, is there any sense in which the present British monarchy believes in the divine right of kings, or if they renounce that too?
1: I'm sure they they don't think in quite such big terms. They are actually quite religious, all of them, yeah, and they take their role very seriously. But if they believed that they were ruling by divine right, I'm sure they would do more. And They know very well they can't do more. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's a very peculiar situation. Some people say, if we got rid of the monarchy, we would then have a more normal government. Well, I fear we wouldn't. we just have a more politicised government. What I do think we need to do is have a proper second chamber. The House of Lords needs to be reformed absolutely immediately. But, of course, the politicians don't want to do that because it's the most wonderful source of patronage and power to... Any government that happens to be in power at that
0: moment—that's a whole nother podcast. We won't go in going any further in, the, in that direction. Yes, but yes, let's yes. talk about. I just want to dwell on the religious point just a little bit beforehand. Of course, yeah. as you say, you know, it has its origins in a medieval coronation rite. and of course, in the medieval period, Britain was pre-Reformation, etc. Is there any conflict in it now being the Protestant Church of England? Have there been adjustments made?
1: I don't know the exact words of the entire service, but my impression is that it hasn't really because no particularly Catholic things are involved in it. For example, when he is anointed with holy oil, the words come from the Old Testament as Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed the king Solomon. That is common to both the Protestant and the Catholic churches. Right. I, I mean, the words do get tinkered with. This ceremony dates back a thousand years, but it has been reshaped uh, again <laughs> and again.
0: Right, absolutely. Um, so let's talk about that. You say in the article that you've written about this, that I urge people to read, that the anointing is the most sacred part of the ceremony. And in fact, we won't see that on the television pictures. Is that right?
1: Yes, I regret to say the most dreadful screen has been made uh, to wrap round the throne, which looks like something that you might make in an elementary school. It's a tree with little leaves, and each leaf represents the country of the Commonwealth. It's very unkind of me to say that, and a great deal of thought has gone into it, but I think it looks terrible. However, he, we won't see him. He'll be wrapped round as though he was on a beach with this kind of screen. But why is it so sacred? Well, yes, because it does hark right back to the Old Testament. And, of course, there's this absolutely wonderful anthem by Handel, one of his great, great pieces of music that we'll hear. I mean, the ceremony, whether you're a monarchist or not, watch it and listen to it, it might be the last one. The music is going to be fabulous.
0: Now, Charles the Third will sit in what's called St Edward's Chair, and this is St Edward the Saint King, Edward the Confessor, is that right?
1: Yes, the Anglo-Saxon king before William the Conqueror, when normally British history begins to sort of count, as it were. But it was made by a medieval successor of his, about 1300, King Edward, and is a very, very rare survival of a medieval wooden ceremonial chair. It was once gilded, it now looks incredibly battered, and it's got graffiti carved into it. And I cannot understand why something so important got left just hanging around for the schoolboys in the school next to the cathedral, the abbey, to carve their initials into it. And there's one wonderful thing about P. Abbott, who spent the night of the 15th to the 16th of July, 1800, asleep in the chair. It's Extraordinary.
0: I love the fact that we have really, really historic graffiti. We have 200-year-old graffiti in here.
1: Exactly. But the exciting object in it is the stone that is underneath the seat, which is known as the Stone of Destiny. It's a great name, that. We're right Mm. into Tolkien and Lord of the Rings there, aren't we? Uh, It's the throne on which the ancient kings of Scotland were crowned as long as memory goes back. And it's also known as the Stone of Schoon because they, that's where they were crowned. And Edward conquered them and stole the stone. Well, took my booty, I suppose. He took the stone <laughs> and brought it back to England and made the chair to house it. So we had it until um, 1996 when the Prime Minister, John Major, got rather worried about the Scots nationalists and, and thought that if he sent the stone of Scone back up to Scotland that they would be happy. Um, they weren't happy, as we know. <laughs> <laughs> but they have been kind enough to lend it back for the coronation.
0: And then tell us about the gold spoon, again, which is related to the oil. Is that right? And that's the oldest object that's being used in the coronation.
1: Yes, it's a 12th century spoon, solid gold. And the only reason it didn't get melted down was that there was a kind of civil servant who bought it before it got put into the melting pot.
0: This is the melting pot that was the Commonwealth, as in, you know... Yeah, yeah. when they were
1: melting down all the regalia, all the gold stuff. He saved it and, and then presented it back to Charles II when the restoration of the monarchy took place.
0: Okay, and now tell us what Charles III will be wearing, because he has this gold mantle, which is this extremely grand costume that he'll be wearing.
1: Yes, after he's been anointed, which makes him into this kind of priest-king, he's dressed basically like a priest in a white robe, a simple white robe, and then on top of that goes a gold robe of a kind that a priest would wear, a dalmatic, and then with a stole... And then on top of that goes a magnificent cloak, a cope basically, of incredible splendour, you know, gold and silver thread and embroidered with the, the flowers that symbolise the various parts of the United Kingdom.
0: And it's symbolic of another monarchy, which of course is George Fourth, which was always famous for being unbelievably lavish, as you put it in your article.
1: George IV was our fat friend as Beau Brummel called him he thought he defeated Napoleon and he needed a really really splendid coronation when it came around so he spent a huge amount of money on having the most splendid vestments made and and so on which have been passed down
0: and then of course there's the crown or rather two crowns tell us about those
1: the crown with which Charles is going to be crowned, it
0: goes back to very ancient times, it goes back
1: to before the Norman Conquest, but it actually contains nothing from the Norman Conquest because... It got remade over the centuries and then it got melted down in the Civil War, remade for Charles II. And what we're looking at is basically the frame of Charles II's crown, but reset with stones at various points because very economically they used to hire the stones in the past and then take them out again. These crowns are a bit like sort of Shinto temples because they've got the same name, but they keep being remade. But the kind of the magic transfers from object to object as it gets remade
0: right i mean that crown absolutely looks like a kind of cartoon crown almost if if you said to somebody draw a crown that's what they draw isn't it <laughs> <laughs> you
1: know that's it with the arches on top but the arches are very important because that, what that means is that you're not subordinate to anybody you know you don't have an emperor okay. above you or anything like that so that's that and it's got jewels set in it and i'm sure they've adjusted the size but it does actually have some i mean speaking as a former metalwork expert it's got some quite interesting mm. 17th century enameling left in the settings or around the settings and then there's the other crown, which is the imperial state crown, which the king wears afterwards, and it's one he's going to wear when he's on the balcony. Now, that has got nothing to do with the empire. It's got to do with this fact of not being subordinate to anybody else and dates back to Henry VIII, who basically said to the pope don't want to have anything more to do with you. Holy Roman Emperor already didn't have anything to do with him. And that was remade in 1937, so you're looking at something pretty new there. But that's the one that contains two absolutely amazing stones. The big red one at the front, the sort of slightly knobbly-shaped one, is called the Black Prince's Ruby. And the Black Prince was so-called because he wore black armour And he was given it by King Pedro the Cruel of Castile in Spain, who had taken it from the Sultan of Grenada in Andalusia. And therefore, it has an amazing story. And it was worn by Henry V at the Battle of Agincourt and by King Richard III when he was defeated at Bosworth and shouted, my kingdom, my kingdom for a horse. You know, it's just got so many stories attached to it. It's wonderful.
0: And given it's a Christian ritual, this, then it has huge significance in that sense then, doesn't it? Because if it's part of the whole story of the reconquest of Spain, a former Muslim nation, (laughs) Al-Andalus, then it has a sort of Christian significance in that sense, doesn't it?
1: Well, I don't think, because by the time it got to the Black Prince, it was just a bit of very expensive stuff that he had got. I right. mean, he was at two steps. So I don't think we can take that back into sort of colonial history or Islamic oppression or anything yeah, like that. Okay. I really I really think in that case we can't. The blue stone up in the cross belonged to um, St. Edward and was in his tomb. And then they opened it and they took it out and included it in the various crowns. And then it got given sort of modern faceting but that is both a relic because it belonged to a saint and also the oldest of the crown jewels that is being worn
0: so those are the kind of key objects and items of the festivities as it were which part are you looking forward to the most of all of this is it the music is it the solemnity of of Handel that will take your breath away the most or is it the whole thing that will move you
1: I think it's partly going to be how it's been composed. The fact that, for example, of the 2,000 guests, more than a quarter will be actually real people, people who have set up community projects in remote parts of of Britain. It's not going to be full of rich and important people. It is not an opportunity to pay back political favours. Okay, there will be members of various royal families of Europe there. There'll be some major politicians there. Macron, the president of France, is coming. The monarchy is surprisingly more in touch with people than politicians are and meets more people. They spend a great deal of time travelling around the country shaking people's hands at the opening of hospitals and schools and going to places where people have been bereaved and so on. And so it's going to be that. The music is going to be absolutely wonderful. The hats will be interesting. Um, You know, and I'm an absolute sucker for men in uniform. (laughs) There are going to be plenty of those.
0: (laughs) Okay, I wanted to ask you lastly, in keeping with that idea of a sort of modern idea of monarchy, of people being represented, the general public, as it were, being represented at the ceremony, the commemoration of the coronation through artworks, it seems to me is equally very complicated now in a way that it perhaps wasn't at the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. What do you think about an appropriate kind of artistic response to the coronation? Very ancient tradition doesn't usually generate very good art
1: because I think perhaps the ideas and the feelings of very ancient institutions don't splice into modern ideas about art. I mean, there are exceptions, of course, aren't there? There are the Matisse windows in a church in France. and In Vence, yeah. Yes, Vence. But generally speaking, people fiddle around with either with old design and make it worse or else come up with something completely childish, as I regret to say, this screen that's going to be wrapped around the king while he's being anointed. Uh, So I don't, unfortunately, expect much great art to come out of this, modern art. But the thing itself, if one were to just look at it as an event, is going to be an absolutely amazing artwork.
0: There you go. Coronation as performance art. Thank you very much, Anna Summerscotts
1: Thank you very much, Ben.
0: You can read Anna's article on the coronation alongside a wealth of other articles about the event at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. Coming up, Carl Lagerfeld in New York and Marlene Smith in Wolverhampton. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. A Vermeer painting at the Metropolitan Museum of Art has long been known to hide an image of a man which was painted over by Vermeer. Now, new investigations have revealed that the hidden figure appears to be an artist wielding a paintbrush in front of an easel, and it's probably a self-portrait. The discovery was made when the picture, called A Maid Asleep, was recently subjected to detailed non-invasive research by the conservator Dorothy Marne and her colleagues at the Met. The art newspaper's Martin Bailey also suggests that A Maid Asleep may relate to a slightly earlier painting by Vermeer's contemporary Nicholas Mice, which includes the small figure of an artist at his easel, reflected in a mirror. Identifying the hidden man as an artist may tell us more about the meaning of the picture. The sleeping woman may not be a maid, but a model, exhausted by posing. Officials at the Kunsthistorisches Museum in Vienna are in talks to loan two fragments of the Parthenon marbles to Greece, putting more pressure on the British Museum to reconsider its position on its Parthenon collection. In a press conference held earlier this week, the Austrian Foreign Minister Alexander Schallenberg confirmed that technical discussions are taking place between the museum and the Acropolis Museum in Athens on mutual loans of the Parthenon frieze. The Greek Minister of Foreign Affairs Nikos Dendias responded that the gesture will create a momentum that could be used in the Greek government's discussions with the British Museum. Dendias also referred to other institutions that have returned Parthenon fragments in Palermo, Sicily and the Vatican. And finally, Comedian, the sculpture by the Italian conceptual artist Maurizio Catalan that consists of a banana affixed to the gallery wall with duct tape which caused a sensation in Miami in 2019, is back in the news. An art student from Seoul National University who was last week visiting the Catalan exhibition at Seoul's Leum Museum of Art removed the banana from the wall, ate it and then taped the peel back to the wall. The student, later identified as No Hoon soo told the Korean broadcaster KBS that damaging a work of modern art could also be interpreted. Interpreted as a kind of artwork. Catalan responded to the incident by saying that nose gesture was no problem. You can hear more about Catalan and the work Comedian on our podcast from 13th of December 2019 and read these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. 2023 marks the 50th anniversary of Pablo Picasso's death. This May, Christie's New York will commemorate one of history's most influential artists and his enduring legacy during its 20th-21st century auction series with several masterworks, among them the captivating La Lesienne, Lee Miller, a 1911 cubist still-life of Cafetier Tasse et pipe, and an iconic portrait of Picasso's lover and muse Marie-Thérèse Walter. Explore these highlights, browse Christie's related sales, and learn more more about the life and work of this important 20th century figure on christies.com. Welcome back. Now, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York from Friday is Karl Lagerfeld: A Line of Beauty, the Costume Institute's Spring 2023 exhibition. It features more than 150 pieces alongside sketches and works of art that relate to the German designers' inspirations and preoccupations. And it identifies several dualities in his stylistic vocabulary that were expressed in his fashions from the 1950s to his final collection in 2019. Lagerfeld was also the theme for the Met Gala, the glitzy annual fundraising benefit for the museum attended by countless stars, from fellow fashion designers and artists to movie stars, influencers and celebrities. But controversy has surrounded the Met's decision to celebrate Lagerfeld when, in the latter years of his life, he made comments that were Islamophobic, anti-same-sex marriage, body-shaming and scornful of the Me Too movement. I spoke to Stephanie Spawn, an arts and culture writer and fashion historian, about the show, the gala and the scandal. Stephanie, this is not... And museums and heritage podcasts. So there may be people listening to this who, like me, don't really know that much about Karl Lagerfeld. Can you just begin with introducing him? Who was he?
2: Sure. So Karl Lagerfeld was a German fashion designer who died in 2019 and left one of the most important legacies in fashion history and art history behind. He was perhaps most known for his work at Chanel, which he joined um, in 1983, but he got his footing um, in the 50s. His career spans six decades. Patou and Balmain, which major, major couturiers at the time. Then he worked for Fendi pretty much until he died as well as Chloe, and he had an eponymous label as well. So he really touched so many different designers during his lifetime, and I think remains largely known not just for his contributions in terms of design there, but also for having this sort of mythical persona. I mean, I think that people would recognize him Um, you know, his suits and his starched collars and his sunglasses and fingerless gloves, perhaps even more than they could recall some of his most famous Chanel designs.
0: And we'll return to the persona a bit later as well. But I wanted to focus first on his designs and also just to acknowledge this sort of curious relationship that he has with art. Because on the one hand, I know there's a very knowing quote at the start of the Metropolitan Museum show, which is that fashion doesn't belong in a museum. So he's sort of conscious of of his place in the fashion world, but and sort of almost contradictory in terms of the art of what he does, right?
2: Yes, I mean, I think this also plays into the idea of his persona, you know, he was famous and notoriously a provocateur, said, you know, many controversial things. I mean, to fashion historians, the art, versus fashion debate, especially in a museum, is is sort of the ultimate place to provoke. So, yes, that quote was said, but I think a lot of his work contradicts that sentiment. So, I mean, he grew up sketching, which is a key premise of this show, that he's an artist in his own right because of the quality of his sketches. I should also mention that In this day and age, it's really rare for the modern couturier to still be sketching their own designs. So that is a competitive differentiator of sorts. But he grew up sketching. He had also said on numerous occasions that he learned more from visiting museums than going to school. So I think he could just be the product of a generation where... Fashion really was not for the art museums. And I think that's very much changed. But, you know, he was a huge, significant fine art and book collector and decorative arts collector. So I think that could just be more the product of this generational gap between what really deserves to be in a museum.
0: Right. And the show has this title, Lines of Beauty. And it's Mm. interesting in different ways, in the sense that it's based on a Hogarth quote, uh, William Hogarth, the, the British artist, who talked about this line of beauty that leads the eye in a pleasing manner along the continuity of its variety. And it seems to me that that's crucial in terms of the kind of variety in the sense of the different strands of Lagerfeld's work, but also in terms of the infinite variety almost within individual pieces and and it seems to me that that is one of the emphases of this show is that right?
2: Yes I mean one thing from a fashion historian standpoint Andrew Bolton has really made himself one of the most reputable knowledgeable curators of all time because rather than just do a traditional you know monolithic monographic show he adds these conceptual frameworks to give these shows these unique structures. And in this case, yes, um, William Hogarth, who has his analysis of beauty line of beauty plate very early when you enter the exhibition to sort of provide that framework. I think it's actually really successfully done, but it does require some you know, reading beforehand to to add that context. So, essentially, Hogarth was writing about the serpentine versus the straight line, the serpentine being this active, beautiful line, the straight being more inactive, and even at times, as Andrew had said, dead. But Andrew believes that both of these lines held incredible significance in value and beauty to Lagerfeld, and this comes out structurally in the organization of the exhibition, which was designed, I should add, by Tadao Ando. So lots of real forces of cross-cultural industries at play here, but the bulk of the exhibition is laid out in nine different galleries playing on this idea of dichotomies in Lagerfeld's work. So that can range from as obvious as masculine and feminine to historical references versus futuristic references to sculpture versus ornamentation. And then in the middle of these galleries is what they call this curatorial explosion. It's the convergence of the two lines of a garment that really showcases, I guess, the best of both worlds, both of Hogarth's lines, as you could say. Because it was also very known that Lagerfeld took inspiration from everywhere.
0: Right. And that's really writ large in terms of his art history references, isn't it? Because on the one hand, he's drawing on... A very deep art history going right back into the Romantic period and the Classical periods. So you have people like Franz Zeve, Winterhalter, the German artist known for these extraordinary, you know, ornate frocks that were in his his work and, and, and this very sort of clean and crisp depiction of them and these sort of leading sort of aristocratic figures and royal figures. And then on, on the other hand, he's also referring to Sonia Delaunay and to Le Corbusier. And so you have these sort of archly modern and then about as florid and floral references from art history coming together in this same show
2: yes so i would say there are references throughout even if they're not explicitly called out on a label where you see the influential artwork there are many many references that can be inherently absorbed however the show does a very good job at connecting the dots And most of the examples come through in the two galleries about ornament versus sculpture and figuration versus abstraction. However, the Winterhalter example was one of my favorites because I believe that was In spring-summer 1995, haute Couture was the wedding dress, inspired by his painting of Empress Eugénie, surrounded by her ladies-in-waiting. And a fun fact that I learned from a friend who was working on the exhibition was that when this design debuted on the runway, the bride was actually flanked by two bridesmaids, and Pink and Blue as a further reference to this painting.
0: So there was a reference almost to the theatre of the painting as well as to the kind of forms of the painting, if you like.
2: Yes, yes. But I thought it was so interesting that this reference even extended beyond The Bride, which is really the tour de force of every couture show, especially for Chanel. But then going into the ornamental and sculptural section, I love the history of the decorative arts, especially wonderful 18th century, 17th century Rococo and, you know, really intense stylization here, which we know that Carl also collected. And that gallery has some of the best examples of decorative arts references. I love that that was brought in. It wasn't just about the fine art and fashion integration. However, there are amazing examples of that, and even as somebody who, whose passion is about the intersection of fine art and fashion and decorative art and fashion, there were numerous examples that I really had no idea about. I especially in that figurative and abstraction section, there is this gorgeous dress inspired by Maurice Duny, which was for Chloé. And also kind of amazing that these artistic references were not just Chanel, they were happening at Fendi, at Chloé. Sometimes you would see an artist like Sonia Delaunay explored in the language of the design house of Chloé versus Chanel and seeing how that plays out was really interesting. There's also Aubrey Beardsley, the English illustrator. I loved how he interpreted those designs for Chanel, and also I would say some of the Met Gala looks. I believe it was Olivia Rodrigo sort of capture this really highly black and white graphic curvature aesthetic that he was using in that instance.
0: Going back to this idea of the sort of borderline between art and fashion, he, he was sort of almost contradictory about it to a certain degree. So he said art is art, fashion is fashion. So clearly making a distinction. Do you think the Met is agreeing with him that, that art is art and fashion is fashion or is it sort of really making the claim for him as an artist with a capital A? I think
2: that there are doing their job of putting his exact words on it, but I do think the intention is to basically say, but really, you know, this is obviously art. I mean, just, I personally, when you're working at the couture level with these different ateliers who, I mean, the, the skill set of the craftsmanship is just the apex of fashion, it's undeniable that it's art. And, you know, in fact, the famous Chanel, Metier, D'Art shows, which were staged and continue to be staged in these different cities around the world. Lagerfeld introduced that, um, roughly, I want to say, in 2001. So he clearly had such respect for these different craftsmen, craftswomen. I just think it kind of comes down to a matter of semantics and historical precedent. I personally think the Met is one of the key players in leading this argument that fashion really is art. Of course, the semantics of fashion versus dress versus costume is another conversation entirely, but I think that there's a power in showcasing these designs on a mannequin with the right lighting, with conservation, and... Really being able to view them up close, I think that actually the Lagerfeld show does a phenomenal job at really conveying that the garment speaks for themselves.
0: Right. Let's talk about the Met Gull. You mentioned it a bit earlier on. I know it's very difficult to condense all of the events of that evening into a soundbite for us, but tell us Mm -hmm. there's a very nice thing that you say at the start of your piece. Online for the art newspaper, which I urge people to read, in which you say that in previous years, effectively, they've been quite difficult to interpret themes. But Lagerfeld is like a bounty for the guests for the Met Gala, right?
2: So, yes, I think that one of the most fun parts of the Met Gala is just figuring out what the heck these celebrities are going to wear, how they interpret the theme. I think in years past, which I do mention in the piece specifically with Ray Kubo, who was the last single designer show that the Costume Institute did. It was in 2017. I mean, the interpretations, it's sometimes these celebrities, it's like they don't even you know, read The Invitation, I always, the purist fashion historian side of me, always appreciates the celebrities, or really the designers who are creating these, who know their fashion history, their art history, know these references, and you can really see that that extra time and attention was given to the final product. Yes, celebrities really struggled with the Kawakubo, avant-garde nature of her legacy, which, of course, a lot of the designs, the lumps and bumps collection, it's not going to be beautiful and... (laughs)
0: Celebrity-friendly.
2: Yes, in a conventional sense. So I think when you have a designer like Lagerfeld, who has, I mean sequins and frothiness and lace and a lot of the celebrities played on that, like, lingerie or dominatrix side. I think it's a lot more conducive to what the celebrities are looking for. Of course, you know, Tom Brown does a wonderful job at, I would say, kind of merging these avant-garde, unconventional sculptural shapes with more conventional beauty or the, the classic chanel design language the camellias and the tweed and the pearls it was pearl overload across the board though with the Met gala which i think could be really anticipated i have a very close group of fashion historian friends from the nyu costume studies ma program i did and personally i love bouncing back and forth our opinions and you know, who we think got it right. And I was saying to them, of course, this sort of is counterintuitive to the opening night. I, I wish that designers and celebrities could almost be walked through the plan for the exhibition months in advance, because there were so many looks in the show that I would have loved to see how designers would interpret. And I think a standout were the Chloe troupe, because now it's under the creative direction of Gabriella Hearst but clearly they did their homework. I mean as the brand I think you're responsible to do that, but they had a combination of actual archival looks including Vanessa Kirby and the most wonderful Chloe Trambloy famous shower dress which is also a version in the show, but then they recreated a look for Olivia Wilde that again has almost an exact version in the show as well
0: right so the met gala is a, it's a curious event because on the one hand it's this moment where everybody looks at the met Mm -hmm. It's obviously a massive cash cow for the Met too. It's an important Mm -hmm. fundraising event. Is there something meaningful to it? I mean, it sounds like it is meaningful in terms of fashion, in terms of the fact that there are people actually doing things within the design field that are important in terms of statements, in terms of the artistry of what they're doing. So it is a cultural event as well as a kind of frothy celebrity thing.
2: Yes, it's definitely become the cultural event of this season. I think that there's a lot of critique about the excess that goes into this show and the expenditure on dresses and the jewelry. I mean, millions and millions worth of diamonds. You know, it is very showy. I think that at the end of the day, this gala has helped put the Met and the Costume Institute on the map. I think that a lot of people forget that really this is a fundraising effort and the amount of money required to conserve fashion and material items in general, I think people lose sight of that. It's really hard to conserve fashion. It's the inherent nature of the medium, the fact that So many of these garments were actually worn by people and then you're dealing with bodily fluids and sweat and what those do over time. And then, I mean, the dyes that were used, the conservation is a whole other component. But I do think that that needs to be spoken about because, you know, this is the reason why like auction houses don't have real dress departments it's because it's really hard to conserve it's really hard to display so a lot of sense it it's not as practical
0: so let's address the elephant in the room then there's been a lot Mm -hmm. of controversy about this show being put on because of some of the statements made by Lagerfeld which are frankly Mm -hmm. odious lots of these statements made not long before he died particularly relating to refugees and so on
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I'm interested in what you think about that because There's a lot of debate about historic figures and their attitudes at the moment, but he's a relatively recently living figure who made statements that are deeply offensive. Mm -hmm. The fashion world, it seems to me, has a bit of a habit of ignoring these things or trying to find ways to avoid them. What did you make of this and and has The Met addressed it at all?
2: Yes, so this is definitely an issue. I think not just with The Met, but in the larger sphere of fashion history. And I think that I personally don't know if I have the perfect solution for essentially evaluating these designers' legacies and separating the man from their designs, which is essentially what The Met has been trying to do. It's not really addressed in the show whatsoever. At the press preview, I think the closest acknowledgement was Andrew Bolton calling some of Lagerfeld's words fearsome, but that the goal of the show was really to focus more on his sketches, his creative output, than the man he is. That being said, the celebrities all acknowledge and Bolton acknowledged, and Carla Bruni, who spoke at the press preview, was at the Met Gala, you know, acknowledged his sharp wit and humor. And after these nine galleries of dichotomies, there's a tenth section that's devoted to the satirical side of Lagerfeld. They have the trompe Chloe designs and other trompe that show this innate playfulness. And then they also have items that harken that classic Carl Lagerfeld, white t-shirt, black suit, pearls, iconography, including a relics section of actual extant items that he wore, including chrome hearts, reins, fingerless gloves, that kind of thing. So there is this acknowledgement of persona, of this Warholian likeness that is so popular, you know, it's it's perfect kind of T-shirt fodder, yeah. which you see these H&M shirts and collaborative pieces that he had designed with them. But I wish that there was more of a direct acknowledgement of these controversies, which can be really hypocritical. And I think personally something that I found really surprising in the way that the show was presented was that the last Costume Institute extravaganza, two-part show, lexicon of fashion being the first, that a huge goal of that was to give either little-known contemporary designers or little-known historical designers a face, and it was a really inclusive show. I forgot the percentage of in the contemporary designer section, how many had never been at the, shown at the Met before. Many living designers, Native American designers. And then in the American wing, in the period rooms, there were stories of, say, Black designers whose designs were really not known today, but the amazing work that they were doing. And there's an acknowledgement in these period rooms of how many of the owners were slave owners and very complex American history. But I thought that it really was a progressive start in line with all the Mets' other efforts to acknowledge, you know, say that artifacts were seized, not necessarily under ethical terms at the museum's inception and kind of righting these wrongs. So to not even acknowledge Lagerfeld's controversies in say the museum exhibition itself i feel like it was a missed opportunity and you know now you see this onslaught of publications of websites kind of pointing the finger and being like but how can you yeah Yeah,
0: I mean, I think I think it's interesting, because obviously, you do have those quotes flashing up on iPads, and some of them Mm -hmm. are addressing. So like, for instance, there's a bit where he says, I like being politically incorrect as well, because I can't put up with political correctness. So they're acknowledging an aspect of it, but not actually dealing with This isn't just political incorrectness. This is deeply offensive kind of commentary. And I, I suppose if you're going to go down that route, then do it properly and fully rather than sort of tentatively, I guess.
2: Yeah, it's it's eluding and I think it's really relying on the exhibition goer to have this former knowledge of some of these controversial statements, really hateful statements that are just not acceptable. I mean, I think there a more than a fine line exists between the wit and the humor and the quote-unquote fearsome comments. And let's not forget that Coco Chanel herself was a Nazi sympathizer, a Nazi informant. It's come out that Lagerfeld's father was a member of the Nazi party as well, so I think we can't just keep brushing these things under the rug. And I think of other designers, perhaps most recently Dolce and Gabbana, I mean, it is just like they have nine lives. Look, I personally feel conflicted at times because I would be lying if I didn't say I love so many of Lagerfeld's or Dolce and Gabbana's designs. But, you know, not everybody is going to be that responsible, self-aware exhibition goer to to kind of separate the beauty from the ugliness.
0: Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You can read Stephanie's response to the Met Gala on the website or the app. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. In 1979, a number of young black British artists founded the Black Art Group in order to explore what black art in the UK was and could be. Claudette Johnson, Keith Piper, Marlene Smith, Donald Rodney, and Janet Vernon went on to be key figures in the Black Arts movement, which made a huge impact on the British contemporary art scene in its time and is now being given long overdue prominence in museums across the UK and the world. The More Things Change, an exhibition about the Black Art Group, opened last weekend at the Wolverhampton Art Gallery in the UK and features more than 30 works by the key artists. Among them is Good Housekeeping 3 by Marlene Smith, a work that responds to one of the most tragic incidents of the period, which was marked by the fractured political and social climate prompted by Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government, the institutional racism of the Metropolitan Police in London and other forces across the country, and widespread resistance and activism among black communities and artists. I spoke to Marlene Smith about the work and the context in which it was made. Marlene, we're talking about good housekeeping. Can you tell us about the circumstances in which you created this work for the first time back in 1985?
3: Well, there are two important things to note about when i made this piece in 1985. Firstly, I had been invited to take part in an exhibition called The Thin Black Line, which was going to be happening at the ICA in London.
0: And that was curated by Lubaina Hameed, wasn't it?
3: That was curated by Lubaina Hameed, who went on to win the Turner Prize in 2017. But at the time, she was working freelance and... Um, she'd been approached by the ICA to organise a women's show. So I knew where the piece was going to be shown. And in recent weeks or months, I can't remember exactly how much of a time lapse there is, but I know that recently there had been a shooting of a middle aged woman who opened the door for the police who were looking for her son. And in what followed, and I don't think there's ever been a clear note of what happened in detail, but she got shot. And as a result of her injuries, she spent the rest of her life in a wheelchair.
0: So this is Cherry Gross, who's who's a tremendously important figure in terms of the history of police brutality in Britain, basically.
3: Yeah, it's possibly one of the worst examples of police brutality. I mean, there was another woman who got shot not long after Cherry Gross called Cynthia Jarrett. Yeah. And I think the two of them are, when you think about police brutality in the UK, they are stories that are iconic, really.
0: Absolutely. And so it must have been very soon afterwards thinking about it, because I think that happened in September 1985. Right. And therefore it was a very instant response, you're saying, to to that story.
3: Absolutely. I remember going to a protest that was protesting against the police brutality and I was so moved by that and so moved by the story of Cherry Gross because she could have been my mother. And so the piece really draws that question about you know the possibility that she could be anybody's mother into the center of the piece so it's called good housekeeping and there's a figure in the drawing dressed in her dressing gown leaning against the wall and just behind her left arm we can see a photograph which is a family photograph and the words above her say my mother opens the door at 7am she is not bulletproof and I think that really speaks volumes as to how I felt and how I expected a lot of people felt about the shooting.
0: And there's a real significance, isn't there, to the exact words that you've used in the sense that yeah. my mother, in terms of it is in some ways a portrait of your mother, right? But also, yeah. for instance, the 7am is significant, isn't it? It's, yeah. not, it's not a random time that you've chosen. Absolutely. Can you say more about that?
3: Well, my mother, for example works night shifts or used to work night shifts. She's passed away recently. And so 7am is a twilight time. It's a time when only people that do certain types of jobs that do shift work are awake. And this is the time that the police chose to come and look for her son. And they would have possibly expected to find nobody home. They had a warrant. So they would have had reason to enter the premises without being invited in. So there's lots of connotations to this 7am. It's it's the time that weary night workers are making their way home. It's the time when early morning workers are arising and getting on their way to work. And it's the time that the police chose to enter this woman's house.
0: And tell me about the photograph, because there's a family photograph, and it's your own family, is that right?
3: Yeah, the family photograph was taken on... The occasion was the christening of my youngest sister and... In tandem with that, it was my other younger sister's birthday. So it's a joint birthday and christening party. And you can see a set table set for a buffet. So there are cakes and there's grapefruit with cocktail sticks sticking in them that have those little cheesy pineapple (laughs) nibbles that were very popular in the 1970s. It's part of my family archive, but it's also a very living, moving photograph that you could have in any family It's the moment of celebration and there's a crowd of people gathered around the table and we would have had our photographer friend come and take some photographs and it's a joyous occasion but I think that the juxtaposition of my mother opening the door at 7am and not being bulletproof and the family photo it shows but the way that I think about it is that there are many women women who are heads of households, who have to make a decision. When the door knocks at 7am, it's their decision. It's not a man's decision, it's their decision whether to open the door or not. And so this piece really speaks about vulnerability and fragility as well as strength and heroism.
0: That seems to me to be absolutely central to the choice of materials that you've used as well. So it's, tell, tell me more about that, because is it right that you've used plaster, but it was actually sort of household plaster as opposed to sort of sculptural plaster that you used?
3: So the way that the piece is constructed is of the figure cut out from MDF or hardboard. And then on top of the wood, I've built a substructure from chicken wire. I've used that to shape the body. And then on top of that, I used j-cloths, which I soaked in plaster. And then I overlaid the j-cloths on top of the, the chicken wire to give the contours of the body, but also to give the shape and um, texture and colour of the dressing gown. It was really important to me that I used that particular pink plaster as well. It's the fine plaster that you would use for, for top layers of plastering. And I used that partly because it was the right colour for my mother's dressing gown. But also it's very much domestic materials, the kinds of materials that you would find in any household.
0: Exactly. And J. cloths are significant in that sense. It's alluding to domestic labour, effectively.
3: Domestic labour. Absolutely.
0: So there's so much involved in this. And, you know, the personal is political. There's your mother, but it's obviously also Cherry Gross, a sort of portrait, if you like, of of both of Mm. those people at once. But also, you know, as well as being part of the Black Art Group, you were involved in the sort of feminist discussions that were happening at that time, weren't you? Absolutely. Can you say more about how you balance those two concerns? Because I know there was concern in both feminism and in the black justice movement about intersectionality. And it seems absurd now to think that, but but is it right that there were disputes and debates about sharing concerns within, you know, single communities?
3: Yes, there were. I mean, during the 1980s, I had lots of different discussions with my fellow activists, if you like. And it does seem ridiculous now, because we have intersectionality now, but we didn't have the term intersectionality in the 1980s. And there were some eyebrows raised and there was some muttering about dividing the struggle. That was the term that was used, that if you went went off and organised groups and discussions and events and activities just for black women, that you were somehow dividing, taking away from the larger human rights struggle that black people were engaged in. But obviously, we can see now that that is just a mistake. But at the time, it was quite difficult. I was part of the Black Art Group during the time that um, I showed my work at the ICA. And I think there was a feeling that somehow once we got started working together as women, we would no longer have time to devote our energies towards the wider struggle. But that obviously isn't true.
0: I'd really like to explore the context in which you made it in terms of that movement. Mm. You were 21 when you made this work, (laughs) and you were 18 when you joined the group and founded the group and so on. So tell me about that, because, you know, you you hadn't even started your foundation course, is that right, when you were suddenly involved in this really important British art movement?
3: I don't really know what to say about that, because even myself, when I look back to that time, I'm astounded at the amount of work that we were doing and just the audacity of the group. But yes, it's true that I when I very first started to work with the Black Art group, I was just 18, not even 18. I met them in the May or June of 1982 and I was going to turn 18 in the August. And I had just got my place on a foundation course in Birmingham. So I'd I'd already made the decision that I wanted to at least find out if there was a possibility of being an artist. So I decided to go and do the foundation course. And I got an invitation to go to the opening of a a show called The Pan-African Connection. And when I went there, I met Keith Piper, who was a member of the group, and he recruited me, As that's the word I would use, because we had a conversation which lasted for the whole of the launch of that show. And at the end of the show, we swapped addresses, and he invited me to the next group meeting of the Black Art Group, and I got involved with that, so I was just turning 18. As part of my A-level, we had to do an independent bit of research, and I had chosen to write my dissertation on black artists, because I wanted to find some and what really stands out for me now and looking back is that my tutors at school were really worried for me that I wouldn't find any black artists they didn't know of any themselves so they were really worried that I wouldn't have any material but I was lucky I went to the library at Birmingham Birmingham Public Libraries I always have to give credit to librarians I think they're wonderful people because they were able to point me towards books and articles on microfiche. Remember microfiche? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so books and articles that were, were written, but it wasn't about black artists in Britain. It was about black artists in America, because their black art movement really had started 10 or maybe even 20 years before us. So they had the longevity and these books were relatively new, whereas I couldn't find any books or even articles about black artists in Britain. But I could find some about American artists. So that was my saving grace, really. But yes, I was 21 when Lubaina Himid invited me to show at the ICA. And I was, remember being really, really nervous, but also incredibly excited about this possibility But the reason that we were working and doing all this activity at such a young age was because it was such a difficult period of time to be black in the UK. And it felt urgent, it felt necessary to make this work. And so it was good to be with a group of like-minded young people who had very similar backgrounds to me, so that we could work together to just air our concerns, really.
0: There's this wonderful story about how you made this work for the first time, talking about that sort of camaraderie amongst you and your fellow artists and also about the nervousness that you've just alluded to. Is it right you were too mm. nervous to write the text on the wall the first time?
3: <laughs> Absolutely. On the day that the work was being collected, the driver and his, his assistant from the ICA turned up to collect the work and I was still umming and ahhing about whether I'd got the face right. I was still nervous about whether it was finished or not. And then when I got to the gallery, I put the piece in place and I knew that I wanted the words above the figure. But I was so nervous. I was shaking like a leaf. And so it was Shutu Bizwas actually, who's uh, still working and making brilliant art.
0: Wonderful artist, yeah.
3: She's a wonderful artist. And she volunteered to write the words up on on the the wall for me because I just couldn't do it. So it was her that we have to thank for the writing. But this time round, I didn't have those nerves, so that was better.
0: Great. So this is actually the third version, is it, right, of the work?
3: This is the third piece of work that I've made called Good Housekeeping. At the ICA, as well as the gallery, Concourse Gallery, which is where the thin black line was, we also used the stairwell. And I had a piece of work in the stairwell that was called Good Housekeeping 2, which was taken from the magazine Good Housekeeping. And it was pages of a fashion shoot that was with some Maasai warriors. So you had all these fashionable young women in their clothes standing next to Maasai warriors as a backdrop. And I just thought that was incredibly racist. So I used those images on the stairwell. So that's why this is called Good Housekeeping 3.
0: And I'd like to just end by sort of reflecting on the achievements of that moment and how in some ways you and a number of other artists from that period have done so much to keep it alive through archival work and so on. Mm. Obviously you had the institutional recognition Mm. at the time, you had a show at the ICA, but it's really notable to me that when I was an art student in the early 90s, we weren't really told about. The black art group we weren't really informed about this whole movement and other movements of a much broader movement across the uk you know tell me about what you felt about the recognition you got at that time
3: again perhaps because we were so young i had great expectations i expected that we were going to change the world through our art and that would certainly that we would change the art world but what happened in reality was that our work was shown and our work was acknowledged during the 1980s but when the the YBAs, the young British artists came along, there was no acknowledgement of our work and we ended up not being shown. So we, we had a moment where we were very popular. And then the 90s, I think Lubaina refers to them as the wilderness years, where we weren't shown at all. So I felt very disappointed. And it took me a long time, actually, after the Black Art Group broke up and there were less exhibitions. It took me a long time to come back to think about that history. So I would say there was about 20 years where I didn't talk about the, the Black Art Group, I didn't make my own work. And I think when you speak to my peers, there's a lot of us who went into the wilderness, as Lebena said, during that time. It wasn't until 2011 that I, with my colleagues Claudette Johnson and Keith Piper, set up the Black Art Group Research Project. And we made a commitment then that we would make sure that the history of the Black Art Group and the Black Art Movement was accessible to new generations. Because, like I said, when I was 18, my tutors didn't know anything about black artists. They didn't know of any. And I didn't want it to be the same for my daughter's generation.
0: Well, Marlene, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. More Things Change is at the Wolverhampton Art Gallery in the UK until the 9th of July. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Julia Mahalska and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Anna, Stephanie and Marley. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now.